Welcome back to Relish the Journey, a top 15 podcast of 2020, according to New York Weekly. And here in 2021, we're breaking down some of the most popular episodes of Relish the Journey by downloads and public opinion, some of my personal favorites, and then episodes like this one, some of the most underrated episodes. This was originally in season one of Relish the Journey. It's a conversation with Elizabeth Letardo, and it was episode 38 in season one. And I was so pumped for this episode. I couldn't wait to put it out. I put it out right at the end of the first year of Relsa Journey, right at the end of 2018. And I learned a very valuable lesson that most of you listening, when it comes to Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving, you don't really listen to hard-hitting conversations in podcasts. You want the fun stuff. You want Christmas music. You don't want uh, philosophical ponderings in uh, conversational audio form. So this episode didn't do as well as I thought it should. And so I'm bringing it back. Different time of year. And I want more ears to hear it because it's a great conversation. Elizabeth wrote an article on LinkedIn that quite literally broke LinkedIn. And you'll you'll hear her talk about this, but she wrote this article called Why Millennials Are Dumping You, an open letter to management. And by now, you know, 2021, it's about five years old at this point. But she wrote this article on LinkedIn, went to bed, and then woke up to, you know, enormous fanfare, lots of shares, lots of likes, comments, and it really took off from there. And her story is really interesting because it's not what you'd expect from somebody that went viral, in my opinion at least, and I'll let you listen to hear what I'm saying there, but I really, I walked away from this conversation feeling like everything I was doing was for something, right? I felt like, you know, I could do what she did because she made it seem and feel very accessible, and that was important to me at the time when I had this conversation, and it's important to me now as I'm doing more with books and talks and this podcast and other shows. So Elizabeth, if you're listening to this a second time, thank you once again for this conversation we're about to hear. I listened to it back and I smile and I'm just so grateful that I was able to have it, have it with you and that everybody can listen to it now. So everyone, here's Elizabeth Letardo. Tardo, and I work for McLeod and Moore, a boutique consulting agency focused on employee engagement and competitive differentiation using a concept we call noble purpose. Wow, that is a practiced elevator speech right there. I've given it a handful of times. <laughs> yeah, it's good. So I found you um, randomly on the internet, um, oddly enough, on an article you were involved in three years ago now, but it's still... Yeah, that- resurfacing yeah it's still i've just looked it up again before our call here and there's still people sharing it just you know yesterday so uh talk about that if you would like leading up three years ago you know this october it was what what were the events leading up to you putting this out was it a calculated thing like um not necessarily calculated. So I graduated college and shortly after went to work for an ad agency and I loved working there. But I saw a lot of my friends and at times myself experience this sort of resentment to the traditional workplace culture. So when I shifted to the organizational psychology side, 
and came to work for McLeod and more, I thought I would give voice to the ever popular topic of millennials. And I was reading a lot about millennial retention and millennial engagement and how no one was able to keep millennials for more than a year. And I wanted to give a really authentic lens into why that is. And that article was based on my experience, friends' experiences, and some research around employee engagement. So it definitely, as you mentioned, hit a hot button in people. It was a top 20 article of 2015, I believe, the year it came out. It's a little over 3 million views, and it divided the world between should work <laughs> be meaningful or not. <laughs> sure. So I'm assuming that was unexpected. Was it one morning you woke up and it's like, oh my goodness, I broke the internet? Or was it a slow burn? It just kept building and building. It was one morning I woke up and I broke the internet. That'd be a really cool feeling, though. Yeah, definitely. And it it broke out about a million views after 24 hours. And everyone kept telling me, don't read the comments. And of course I did. Like, who can keep themselves away from that? <laughs> yeah. So obviously there's negatives in there then. So what what's the negative take on that article? Sure. So I think the comments were really in three buckets. One was probably 65% of the comments, which were overwhelmingly positive, saying, I agree with this. There's tons of research to back this up. Employees want meaning, engagement, purpose, high performance standards, you know, the things that seem obvious. There was another 15% of people, and these were my favorite people, who were recruiters, So for an example, someone from Campbell's Soup came on and said, we have purpose and meaning here at Campbell's. If this article resonates with you, give me a call. So really using it as like a recruiting platform, which I thought was so smart. Yeah, it is really smart. Another small portion of the group really hated that article. And I got a few open letters back. My article was called Why Millennials Keep Dumping You, an open letter to management. And I got a few open letters back and a few thousand comments saying, This is, you know, BS for lack of a better word. Work is work. You're there to make a paycheck. You're a cog in the machine. And the sooner you accept that, the happier you'll be. Gosh, (laughs) that makes me cringe just hearing that. Yeah, and and the thing about LinkedIn is you're commenting as yourself. Right. I mean, it's not like Reddit where you can be, you know, basement boy one, two, three. Well, not even that. You're out there. Yeah, and and your employer is out there too. It's not just you. It's your, your resume is following you in your comments. Yep. Definitely true. So I'm amazed at how bold some people were, but nonetheless. So did you get actively engaged then in the comment section? Feed the trolls, as they say? No, I never commented back. I did not make that mistake. I did read them, not all of them, but a lot of them, and I never commented back. But I do throw a like in there when someone gets particularly sassy. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, and looking at your LinkedIn profile after I found you, um, it does look like you were that millennial, like jumping around about a year or so. You had a couple jobs where you, were, you weren't there for over a year. So what were some of those kind of specific experiences? You had general themes, you know, everything down to a $5 macchiato, which made me laugh in the article. But was there yeah, a particular... Yeah, I mean, of, course, of course the article is kind of clickbaity and yeah. pokes fun at some of the stereotypes, sure. obviously. Um, So I had a lot of different internships in college, and a lot of my LinkedIn reflects short employment times because they were natural ending internships, like summer internships or semester internships. I did work for an ad agency for almost a year out of college and left just because I felt like the industry wasn't for me and the culture there wasn't for me either. And a lot of my friends had similar experiences in first jobs of some folks finding a ton of meaning and a ton of purpose 
and some folks thinking, you know, this, this isn't for me. And I think that's where millennials kind of get a bad rep because the employee retention numbers are so low. Sure. See, so how do you think, how do you create meaning yourself, do you think, in a job if it's not created for you? That's a great question. So after I wrote that article, I started doing courses for LinkedIn Learning. And one of the most popular ones I've done is Leading Yourself, which is about just that. How do you create a meaningful and purposeful work experience when your boss might not be handed into you on a silver platter? Right. And the thing I, I say the most is it's all about the framing. And as a millennial and as someone who's early in their career, not every job is going to be glamorous. 90% of your daily duties are probably grunt work. But when you look at those activities in relation to the impact of the organization, everything changes. And that's something I challenge myself to do and, and talk a lot about in the course leading yourself is the ability to push yourself and see the end impact of what you're doing and see how it ties into an organizational strategy and see the impact it has on customers. And it's so easy to not push yourself to think about it when you're in the middle of it. Yeah, so then on the flip side of that, then what would you say to the managers out there who just, you know, they put their heads down and they're focused on their own stuff and not on creating that meaning for the people? Um, I mean, everyone has metrics they're held accountable to. I have metrics. I have a sales quota that I have to hit, and it's really easy to zoom in on that. But what the research tells us, and this is a lot of my graduate work, is that the more you put into developing employees, creating a meaningful workplace, the more those metrics start to take care of themselves. So profit being one of the ones that's most talked about. Profit is probably the most lagging indicator in business. It's a result of the decisions you made last year. And those decisions, it, they play out in the long term. But when you focus on profit in the short term, you cost yourself the opportunity to really engage with employees and create a meaningful work experience, which is ironically what derives the most profit. So, so it's easy to head down and focus on those metrics, but the how you get there is actually what moves the needle. Sure. So um, have you worked with any companies that use employee engagement as the metric over a profit metric? So I think, you know, it's not a, a false dichotomy necessarily. The best organizations have a ton of metrics and the executive scorecard covers everything from revenue, stock price, down to employee engagement and net promoter scores. So it's a holistic view, one of which is profit and one of which are some of those more leading indicators like employee engagement and customer retention. And so for people out there who have no idea what any of those metrics are, if it's a like a small family-owned business, right, it's not a Fortune 500, where do they start? I mean, where does somebody just say, man, I want to try this, but I don't know how or where to begin? Where do you think they begin? I think the most logical place to start is talking to employees or talking to yourself if you're a solopreneur about the impact you're having on other people and other businesses. And there's, there's kind of an art and a science to employee engagement. A lot of times it comes in the form of an employee survey, which is something a lot of people are familiar with. And sometimes just anecdotal hallway conversations and the feeling you get when you walk into a conference room, if people are excited to be there or not. Sure. Well, like you said. So I think, yeah, the first step is just being mindful to, to 
and being aware that employee experience and employee engagement do ultimately impact the bottom line. Right. And having it be authentic, I suppose, like you said in the, in that article, culture is not collateral, you know, just having free Panera is not going to, you know, make everyone love the workplace all of a sudden. If it's just this one time shot in the dark and you say, yep, I'm done. That's not really, that's not what counts. Yeah. And I mean, who doesn't like a free sandwich, right? Like everybody loves Panera, but I think especially when it comes to millennials and why that article hit such a hot button is a lot of organizations think that pool tables and unlimited vacation and garden clubs are the way to employee retention when, just like you said, it's meaningless if there's not something true behind it and a true value and a true purpose of an organization. Because at a certain point, it can almost have the reverse effect. And I've seen it where... I work for a family-owned company, and it's coming up on Christmas time, and people mm-hmm. get gift cards, and we do hams, and the Christmas party, and not things that a lot of people still do anymore, but we do. But some people, you see it, and it's like they're, they deserve that fam. And if you took it away from them, it's like, how dare you? They're entitled to this ham now, even though it's, you know, right. it's, it's an extra special thing. It's almost like it's not enough. Well, if the company can get these hams, why can't they do this, that, or the other thing for me? And Right. Well, and it becomes about the ham, not the meaning behind the ham. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Very so true. It's, a, it's an interesting balance. So we started off with millennials because of that letter, but then, I mean, to me, I think I even commented to you when I reached out to you or when I shared it, I feel like you could remove the word millennial and put you know, human being, Gen X. Yeah, any, any high-functioning person. Yeah, uh, any self-aware person would say, yeah, I feel that way. But with your background and the research you've done, what are the differences you see if, you know, you've got a mixed workforce of millennials, baby boomers, so on and so forth? Is it different, the same, variations of the same? That's a great question, and you are not the first person to say this isn't millennial-specific. A ton of people in the comments were saying, I'm a baby boomer and I feel this way. This is normal of anyone who wants to have a meaningful job. And the research indicates that everyone wants meaning at work. Everyone wants accountability. Everyone wants to feel like their work is having an impact. But millennials are willing to quit if it's not there. So it's a a plus for everyone and an imperative in millennial retention. And a part of that is generational, and it's it's a pattern we've seen play out across Generation X and the baby boomers when they were of similar age. And part of it is is economic and having the flexibility to live with their parents longer and not the responsibility of owning homes. So there are a lot of factors that contribute to why millennials will leave in the absence of it. But like you said, the research proves this is a plus for everyone. And you kind of answered something I was going to ask is just why you thought that was, why are they so willing to leave? But when you phrase it that way, if they're early enough in their career, you're right. They don't have a lot of the, they don't have dependents. They don't have all the bills that somebody that's really entrenched in their career wouldn't have the luxury to just say, you know what? I'm done. I'm not doing this. Exactly. But what's interesting about that too is you don't have to quit a job without you without having another one. You know, you could still leave and go find another one someplace else if you don't like it instead of staying and just being miserable. Just plugging it out, right? Yeah. So why do you think people well, stay? Especially in the – go ahead. I was going to say, so why do people stay when they're – think they stay when they're miserable? You know, millennials are going to leave because they want to be happy. And then there's this whole other group of people that just 
love being miserable and they stay and don't do anything about it. And that's, I think that could be another open letter. Like, Hey, why I wish you'd dump me if you're an employer, you know, get out. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, the business I work in, we call it the quit and stay. They have mentally and spiritually left the building, but are physically still present. Right. And then there's that weird point where they're not happy with uh, their paycheck, right? But they're yep. not willing to put in the work needed to then positively affect their paycheck. But it's just enough to get them by and also just enough to have them be mad all the time. And then they, right. it's just crazy. Absolutely. And the, the chilling effect that has on everyone else around them, too, is something that's often overlooked. Right. Yeah, when they're – yeah, I think you even had that in the letter about someone that is the top performer. They see someone that quit and stayed, and then it brings them down because they feel like if that's being allowed, then is that really the company they want to work for? Right. And there's, there's a ton of research around it. One of the greatest books about it is called The No Asshole Rule. <laughs> I like that That's title. literally the title. And it, it's a Harvard PhD who wrote it. His name is escaping me. But he goes into the science of these people who are considered assholes, just a real drain on the workplace, and calculates up what they're what they're costing and a lot of times these people are excused because they're high performers or because they've been with the company for a long time or because they have a certain contract but the chilling effect on revenue and employee morale is 99% of the time completely outweighed any benefit they're bringing right yes yeah, so you almost need we talked about metrics earlier you need like an asshole metric like <laughs> Where does somebody fall on this scale? And right, is it there's worth it? I'm sure some like Cosmo quiz is your employee sure. an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, and it's interesting too talking about employee engagement and looking at your LinkedIn profile. The first thing you have on there is that you worked at Applebee's and you were skilled at working 18 hours with a smile. And I've never personally worked in hospitality, but one of the companies that our company owns is a restaurant and brewery and event facility. And mm -hmm. there's hundred plus people that are there doing that grind, and it is amazing that they can stay so positive the whole time. Um, I'm just curious. You started at Applebee's, like most people do in a first job, you know, food service yep. or something like that. Where you are now, as you know, a VP level, looking back at your time at Applebee's, you know, what what similarities can you draw between the two, even though they're so far apart? And like, what do you think you learned at Applebee's that you still take with you? every day when you're at the office they're not as far apart as people think and anyone who has been a waitress or a bartender knows that it is one of the most challenging jobs there is in terms of mental stamina in terms of emotional acting and the need to smile for 18 hours a day like I wrote in my LinkedIn profile but I think what really got me through that time was just thinking about the end user and I, I know Applebee's I don't think truthfully is that great. In fact, we called it Crapplebees a lot of the time. <laughs> That's funny. But I, people only go out to eat once a week, and, and Applebee's for some people is the highlight of their weekend. And focusing on that and knowing that it was in my hands to provide a great experience was what really powered me through that double shift. Right. And the same is true now. I mean, in any job, there's grunt work, and in any job, things don't always go the way you want. But keeping in mind why you're doing what you're doing and the impact it's having on other people is how you push through that hour 16, 17, 18. Right. 
or a year if you stay, year five, yeah. six, seven, you know. Have you read the book uh, or heard of the book Start With Why? Yes, Simon Sinek. Yeah, that's just, that's what it made me think of because that was a great book and he talks a lot about that. And that goes back to employee engagement is, you know, what what the hell am I doing? You know, how does it fit in the bigger picture? And you could take a small task and frame it with this grand idea and then you have people that buy in and they'll keep doing it. Exactly. And it's not just the people who are selling life-saving pharmaceuticals or the people who are, you know, inventing clean energy. It's everyone from a waitress at Applebee's recognizing that, hey, for this family, this is the one night a week they're going out and it's a big deal to them. To someone who is in consulting and a VP level saying, you know what, this training program is going to mean everyone to the person going through it or everything. Right. And just always pushing yourself to look one step further down the line and pass the task and keeping that focus on the impact. What do you think is going to be the issue that we talk about with the generation that's after the millennials? Have you looked into oh, that? Lord. <laughs> what do they even call that? I've heard like the Instagram I, generation, generation or something. Z, right? Z? Okay. Or Zennials, I think, are the people on the border. I'm not sure. That will be a host of of new articles, I'm sure. Well, I was thinking about it because I'm a fairly new father. My son's going to turn one year old next week. And he can really already use a smartphone. Like he picks it up and yep. he, he knows when he moves his finger one way the screen moves. And then he figures out, oh, well, then I can do this. And then he's he brings up the weather on my iWatch like every time. I have no idea how he does it, but he just figures it out. So that and then i think about me growing up and putting the aol internet cd into the computer to try to to get internet and it's just so crazy to me that by the time he grows up we might not even have actual like laptop computers anymore it might not even be a thing um let alone cassette tapes or you know cds even so there's going to be there's got to be a whole nother thing with that where I think, I guess I'll answer it myself. My thought is probably going to be just face-to-face communication is going to just be really a lost art form because everyone's got their head in their phone. I absolutely agree. I see it now with email. Everybody always says, oh, I emailed them. And it's like, okay, their office is three doors down from you. Did you get up and go talk to them? (laughs) Because sending an email doesn't mean it's done. Right. I think there's there's going to be a host of challenges with Generation Z, one of which is face-to-face communication. But I think there's also a lot of opportunity that they bring to the table. They are great at written communication. They're great at learning things quickly. They're great at figuring out problems without a lot of resources. So I think that level of innovation and that level of problem solving is something that's going to add a lot to the workforce. If we can all talk about it face-to-face, that will definitely be a plus. So we'll see how that dynamic plays out. Right. Absolutely. And then it's it's really setting up organizations to be ready for it as well. You know, it, yep. I look at the company I work for and we, we need that new, that next round of employee. We have a lot of people that, you know, in 10 years will probably retire and you look around and it's, well, geez, who's left? Um, right. So you got to start now and then it was, you have to start with the end in mind, right? So put people in leadership positions that are going to be able to deal with that and be like, be able to choreograph a team of people that have mixed you know, mixed talents and that included, because otherwise, if you just have that hard hitting guy that just screams at everybody, you know, that's not going to (laughs) work. That's not going to last very long. But the more, the 
more we dive into the research behind employee engagement and the more we learn about what creates a really successful organization, and this started, you know, decades ago with books like Good to Great, people have been trying to figure this out, and every day we get closer to figuring out that magic formula. I think the intersection of the continued research and Generation Z is going to be really interesting. I read that book, too. That was a good one. That and, like, Malcolm Gladwell stuff. Have you read him? Yeah. Yeah, those are – well, yeah, obviously, he's much more psychology, and you, you're self-proclaimed organizational psych nerd. So. I was going to say, my title on LinkedIn is organizational psych nerd. I have read a lot of books about this. Yeah. So, you know, well, yeah, going off that, that book Start With Why or Good to Great, which I've read, and all Malcolm Gladwell stuff, it's, it's all good information. But how would you package it up into, you know, okay, if we know we need to start with a why, but – how like begin with how like where where do people start and like just to start making the change where would you recommend people begin that's a great question so I really like the book start with why I thought it was really philosophical but what it lacked was and then what like what do you do with that information right which is kind of what the consulting form I work for McLeod and Moore is based on is the what and the how and how do you translate that why into job descriptions and onboarding and marketing materials and internal communications and product development in all these areas of business making it really tangible not just a plaque on the wall that says here's our our mission statement or our purpose statement right yeah, so it's, i think yeah it's true looking at each of those areas and really looking from a, a broad lens at the business and thinking how can we put that why or that purpose statement at the front and center of product development is it the driving question we're asking how can we put it at the center of our job descriptions and our recruiting efforts is it the thing we're touting the most so getting really specific on the functional pieces and applying that level of intention with the why or the purpose statement. Makes a lot of sense. And that goes back to having it be authentic and not just free Panera. You know, if it's right. if it's into everything, then it just becomes second nature. It's like saying your name. You know, everybody's on that page. You'll track the people that are fit that already, and you'll get rid of the people that are the assholes we talked about if they don't fit exactly. into it. And then you're set up for success as long as you don't lose sight of that you know, the culture you've created at that point. Right. So how did you get here? Like (laughs) this is, is it just a mixer of books you read and education? Like what brought you to this point in your life where you are, you know, such an authority on this topic? Like what's your path to this been? Sure. So I studied advertising and psychology in my undergrad and I was always really fascinated with getting people to do things and how what you said or how you said it or what you showed them could change the outcome of situations. So I didn't really know where that, that interest would lead me. I started out working in advertising and like I said, love that, love being able to create messages and position products differently. But at the end of the day, it wasn't as fulfilling to me as that one-on-one personal connection. So I thought about going into sales, which is the unnatural next step from advertising a lot of the time. And when I was in a, in a introspective time thinking I'm probably going to leave advertising, my mom came to me with a freelance project and she had written a book called selling with noble purpose. So we're a family of nerdy salespeople. (laughs) 
And she was working with Google on implementing some of the principles and selling with noble purpose. And at that time, I was selling Google AdWords for the ad agency I worked for. So I knew a lot about it. And I took the freelance project and we worked really well together. And I just became obsessed with this learning and development and organizational culture side of messaging. And it was something that right when I got into it, it seemed like it aligned everything I was interested in. I love people. I love messaging. I love thinking about situations and trying to influence actions and language. So it, the second I was exposed to it, I knew it was the perfect storm of everything I was interested in. So I went back to school and I got a master's in organizational psychology with a concentration in coaching and went to work for McLeod and Moore full time. And we have grown the business to encompass consulting, speaking, and we also run a Noble Purpose Institute once a year. Very cool. So that is the the quick summary of from Applebee's to here. <laughs> sure. There you go. That could be your next LinkedIn article from Applebee's to here. Yeah. What Crapplebee's taught me about coaching. There you I'll go. Kind of there you go. And don't be an asshole could be the subtitle. Yeah. Right. 18 um, hours of a smile. Yeah. Um, that's funny. You lost, made me lose my train of thought as I'm laughing here. I feel like there are a lot of people that are out there trying to do what you do without the education that you have, you know, so many people just put in their LinkedIn, you know, I'm a guru of this, that, and the other thing, and listen to what I have to say, I have this great opinion, but then they don't have really anything to back it up with, you know, so how do you combat that in your professional sphere? Um, I don't know, I think there's a lot of, of great people out there who have read a lot and know a lot, and I am not the person to think a degree makes you an authority on really anything. Some of the smartest people I know are high school dropouts and some of the dumbest have PhDs. So you really <laughs> have to suss through the content a different yeah, way. Absolutely. But the people who I think haven't had experience working in a lot of organizations, and, and I say this from a place of being early in my career, and I don't have the experience a lot of these people have, but you, when you're looking for an organizational psychologist or a business coach or a culture coach, whatever you want to call them, sussing out who has had experience in the industry you're in, who has had experience working in the type of company you work with, whether it's a very authoritative culture or a very laid back culture and looking for people whose values really align with your own. I mean, some businesses need process driven consultants. Some people need communication driven consultants. There's a huge world of these quote, gurus out there and finding one who is completely aligned with you has never been easier with tools like LinkedIn. Sure. So going in as a millennial to businesses and some big ones, as I saw from what you sent me before this, do you ever feel like even though they've hired you to work with them, that they look down on you because you are one of the, you know, millennials, quote unquote? Maybe. And I, I'm really fortunate to have stepped into a business that already had a big client list. So I have some authority with just the name on my business card. Sure. But that, that might be the case. And that's completely fine. I mean, I, I completely accept the fact that I am a millennial. I don't know everything. A lot of times our buyers and our customers are a lot older than me and a lot more experienced than me. But there's value to having different voices in the room. Absolutely. So I, I completely take millennial stereotypes with a grain of salt and never get too offended. Yeah, they always make me laugh. I was in – so the my business is in construction, and yeah. it's a very, you know, good old boys industry. You know, I have industry yep. events, and a lot of people are not under 30 like I am. And almost every time it gets to be, you know, 
talking about labor problems and you know those damn millennials get thrown out and they, oh yeah all that and it's just it makes me smile because it's like i just want to raise my hand and say yes i'm right here i'll tell you what the problem is with all of us i could just read that letter that you wrote because that's what's going yeah, through my head generation yes i'll answer any questions you have you know but it is just funny how some people it's like the people that quit and stay it's like some people just quit and stay in life they just don't progress as human beings with their openness to new ideas and new people they're just always content to find something to be mad about you know every right. there's always that one generation saying that next generation's terrible or like, Hey, that's not country music. When, when in my day, this was country music and any of those kind of things, you could insert an industry or an art form or a generation and you'd find it. Oh yeah. And, and it's not a unique view to think that the generation following you, you know, doesn't have their shit together for lack of a better phrase. I mean, it was Socrates who said these children now love luxury. They have bad manners. <laughs> they show disrespect for their elders so this this look down on the generation following you is not unique. And it's something that I'm sure you and I will probably be doing in 40 years. <laughs> I hope not. I hope I'm not that guy. <laughs> right? I, just I think, hope I'm not that angry old woman. I just think it's so amazing the, the time and energy people put into that sort of thing and what we could all accomplish as a collective group if we didn't focus on that. And you just saw a person for who they were and their talents and get caught up on, you know, insert an identifier here. You know what I mean? It's, right. it's just really silly as a society, I guess, to get deep that there is even that conversation. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and humans are kind of just that way. And there are some economic experiences that define millennials differently. And there are some economic experiences that define boomers differently. I mean, you hear people talk about the impact of the Great Depression that has on people's outlook on money. So while there are these shared experiences, it is important to remember that a generation is a huge variety of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can be, I think it's what, up to like 35 or something and still be a millennial? I think it's even older now. It's it? like 37 or 38. Well, and you can be from any part of the country. You can be any right. gender. You can be any race. A, the, the group of people is just way too huge to make assumptions about. Yeah, very true. There's a, there's a two for a question I'd like to ask everybody because I think it always brings good conversation. Um, and I'll frame it for you in, you know, your career, not just your life in general, but going through your career and your different pathways, leaving advertising, you know, finding your way to where you are, what was one really good piece of advice somebody gave you as you were contemplating all those different choices? That is a great question. I said that a lot of times today. You're a very good interview. Oh, thanks. Um, the best piece of business advice that I ever got came from my grandfather. And he told it to me when I first started working at Crapplebee's. And he said... <laughs> No matter what your job is or how senior you are or what your responsibilities are, part of your job is to make sure your boss is successful. Hmm. And as a millennial generation, I think that is often underemphasized. But when you put that focus out there towards making someone else successful, good things come of it. And I'm so glad he gave me that advice because it completely changed the way I behaved. And when you look at philosophies like servant leadership and some of these more cultural org site books it 
that's what it's all about is making sure someone else is successful. And when your boss is successful, you're successful and they will always pass it down to you. Right. Yeah. It's, that's really good advice. I like that. And it's funny. Um, the guy I just interviewed recently, similarly, he was talking about the idea of legacy over currency mm-hmm. about like, how will you be remembered and what do you do for other people versus just chasing, chasing money all the time. And right. that's similar. It's not focusing on yourself at the end of the day. It's, focusing on others and then you know because of that you end up getting what you would have pursued the whole time anyway yeah there was another great book on that called give and take and it was a a scientific study about the people who ask for favors versus the people who do favors and it concluded that the givers the people who do favors are much more successful yeah i actually heard a quote similar to that too it was um ask for a job and you'll get advice and ask for advice and you'll get a job (laughs) <laughs> and I thought that was funny. That's pretty true. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so the the second part to that then is, you know, if you had to go talk to you back at Crapplebee's, we'll go back there, knowing what you know now, what piece of advice would you have given yourself? Um, to not discount any experience. I mean, as much as I, I talk about how I was really focused during that time and tried to always remind myself of – you know, the guest experience and what it meant for these other people. I did in the back of my mind have the thought, you know, this is a job for me. Like, I'm not going to be here forever. And I had that thought through a lot of internships and even my first job. And I think when you let that thought in, even if you don't want it to impact your performance, it does. Even if you don't want it to impact your engagement, it does. So I think the advice I would give to my my younger self would be just be all in and don't necessarily worry about the next play. Just be fully where you are and get the most out of it. I like that. You know, This whole thing I do is called Relish the Journey because I was at a point in my life when I started this where I had all these wonderful things happening. You know, I was building a house my wife was pregnant, got promoted at work, all these awesome things happening all at one time. And I should have been the happiest guy, but I wasn't and just stressed out. And I didn't relish the journey I was living at that time. I didn't stop and just smell the roses. And so this kind of forces me to do that, you know, it and force other people to do that, you know, stop and have this sort of conversation that I learned something from. And hopefully the people I'm interviewing do, if it's about me or themselves and the people that are listening do. Um, but What's a time for you when that happened where you're surrounded by all the success, but you really weren't in the moment to appreciate it? Hmm. I think that happens to everyone all the time. And the challenge is to not let it happen constantly. So we all have moments where we're not fully present. Like it's impossible to be mindful for 24 hours a day, no matter how many BuzzFeed tips you read on it. (laughs) So true. But to, to let yourself go days without being mindful or weeks without being mindful or months without being mindful is really where it starts to get tricky. So I think I've definitely let myself go too long without that mindfulness practice, especially when things get busy and you have a lot on your plate and it seems like every day brings an even bigger to-do list than the last day. But it, to never let yourself go too long is the challenge. I mean, that's what you just said. You always have to be pushing yourself. Yeah, it's for me, it's practicing gratefulness, you know, and it's like working out. If you stay in shape, it's easier to stay in shape, right? So if you force yourself yeah. to practice it, it's easier to do. But if, like you said, you go too long, then you're really sore, you know. You haven't worked out in a while, and it's harder to get back in the rhythm. 
So absolutely. I so I think when when life is throwing a lot at you, it's so easy to let that go, but it's so hard to get back the longer you let it go. Oh yeah. So this one's a thought provoker. And if you listen to any of them, you'd, you'd know it's coming. So I don't know if you did listen to any, so maybe I'll catch you off guard. But how would you describe your life so far in three words? I did know this was coming. <laughs> okay. I did a little bit of homework, and I was ready. And I already thought about my three words. Okay. So I would say mine are live with purpose. Okay, cool. So talk about that. What does that mean to you? Sure. So when I think about my life's experiences, the most meaningful times were when I was really intentional and really purposeful about what I was doing, even if it seemed meaningless. And that's, you know, the consulting work that I do and the company I work for does now is making sure that every action is focused on a larger purpose, that every interaction is focused on a bigger purpose. And the more you keep that top of mind, whether you're waiting tables or whether you are consulting, the more mindful and successful you become. So for me, always challenging myself and the people around me to focus on the bigger picture and realize the impact of everything we're doing is is what matters the most. That's awesome. I like that a lot. It ties, it kind of brings us to a good closure here. It kind of brings together the start with why and, and everything we talked about so far. So live with purpose. Dig it. Cool. Me too. I'm trying to do it, but I'm a work in progress and everyone's a work oh, in progress. Yeah. The moment you stop being a work in progress is it's where you become one of those assholes. <laughs> yeah. So, what's that phrase? Stop learning, stop burning. Sure. Yeah. Or, you know, physics, right? Just an object in motion stays in motion and one at rest stays at rest. So keep it going. Very true. But the, I find in myself and in work and in life, the more you remind yourself the reason behind something or the end game, the easier sometimes mundane tasks become. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What's the purpose? Why am I doing this? Of course. And and true in parenting, true in waitressing, true in just about anything. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I appreciate you indulging some random guy that messaged you on LinkedIn out of the blue on an article you wrote three years ago. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I don't know what that says about me, but I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I've enjoyed it, and I think a lot of people will enjoy what you had to say, so I appreciate you sharing. Cool. Well, to anyone listening, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, and obviously I'm pretty responsive to messages. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) Now that you've heard from Elizabeth, I want you to hit the link in the show notes where you could send me a voice message. Anchor makes it super easy. I would love to hear from you what you thought about this episode, what your biggest takeaway was, and your thoughts on other episodes we should bring out of the vault or maybe future guests. Give me your feedback. I love it. I'm going to use it to help curate season four of Relish the Journey. So hit the link and leave me a message. Till next time, everybody. You're listening to Relish the Journey. I'm your host, Miles Biggs. Cheers. Cheers.